I wanted to begin this morning in a little bit of an unusual way. I'd like to ask everybody to sit back, maybe close your eyes, and enjoy a five-minute uh, radio story that I heard earlier this week, and you'll understand why I'm playing it for us, I think. Might be a little uh, introduction to it. Uh, it was on a show called Here and Now. Support for Here and Now comes from BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com public. We want to take some time to remember the biologist who made the world fall in love with this sound. Roger Payne introduced us to the Symphony of the Sea back in 1970 with the groundbreaking album Songs of the Humpback Whale. It became the most popular nature recording in history. It also helped energize a movement to protect marine mammals. Roger Payne died in his Vermont home over the weekend. And we want to remember him in his own words, so here he is reflecting on the monumental album and his love for humpback whales. The first time I saw a whale up close, I was working at Tufts University and I heard an announcement that a whale had washed ashore on Revere Beach and I decided I wanted to see it. By the time I got there, somebody had cut its flukes off and they were missing. Somebody else had carved their initials in the side of it and somebody else had stuffed a cigar butt in the blowhole. And I just, I stood looking at this animal it was perfectly clear to me that nature was under the most appalling assaults and most people didn't seem to know anything about it and I thought what could I do and I thought whales that's what I could do there was this fellow in Bermuda named Frank Watlington who worked for the Navy doing something secret and uh, he had heard sounds that he thought were whales, and they were quite elaborate. And so I went with my former wife, Katie Payne, and we got a ride. As we boarded the boat, Frank took us through the engine room and took out of his pocket a tape, a magnetic tape, and walked over to a tape recorder that was in the corner of the room. But there was a generator in the room roaring. I mean, you had to almost shout to be able to be heard above it. And he threaded the tape across the heads of the recorder and he hit the on switch and he put some headphones on his head and adjusted the gains. And then leaning forward and putting the headphones on my head, he said, I think these are humpback whales and shouting to be heard over the roar of this thing. And what I heard completely blew my mind. I had never heard anything in nature that was remotely as extraordinary a performance, and it instantly seemed 
just dead obvious that here, finally, was something that could get enough of the attention of the world and make it possible to get people concerned about whales. People knew at the time that a whale was a big blubbery animal, and that's about it. At the time, we were killing 33,000 large whales, baleen whales, each year. But it was dead obvious that whales were on the brink of extinction. I decided that I wanted to make a record almost at once. What I decided is the world has to hear this. I mean, that's going to make a difference, a huge difference. That record took off and it became the most successful recording of, of uh, natural history sounds ever. A lot of people weep when they hear these sounds. It hits them emotionally. And I've never wept when hearing them, but I've come damn close. And um, I thought to myself, this is how I'm going to spend my life. We're trying to translate whales speak. Do I think it's going to be the same sort of full, rich language that humans have? No, I certainly don't. But I think it will have some very complex and interesting things. I would love to ask them simple things. But I would say, you know, sing. Or, again, <laughs> sorry would be a good word to say. And once a whale speaks to humanity, no matter how simple its message, it has a chance, I think, to get the attention of the world in a way that it just desperately needs to have. And once that happens, I think all sorts of change will occur. And once change begins to happen, I've noticed it happens so fast that all you can do is just watch. And once that begins, then I am filled with hope. Roger Payne is the biologist behind Songs of the Humpback Whale. He died last weekend at the age of 88. This piece was produced by WB. Thank you to Roger Payne. When Roger Payne saw that suffering, that desecration of the whale, and realized that the earth, as he said, was undergoing an appalling assault, he asked himself, what can I do? Whales, that's what I can do. And then, when he actually heard those songs, their songs, it completely blew his mind. And he understood that here was finally something that could get the attention of the world about what's going on. This haunting beauty of the whale's song 
and his inspiration helped to launch a worldwide movement focused on ecological protection, awakeness, and the legal rights of nature. His example of paying attention to what's going on in the world is, as Roshi Jones says in this chapter on integrity we have been reading, integrity shining through the decisions that we ordinary people make every day. It's such a powerful and wondrous big story. Those sounds stayed with me all week and maybe they will also stay with you. Let's enjoy those sounds. Let's let the story guide us past our doubts about whatever we can do. Remembering that this story can be a little fuel when we need more imagination. When we're really finding ourselves maybe struck by an idea and a little timid about trying it out. Let's develop during this time that we're studying together our capacity for living as if, whatever the challenge, as if we can make it happen. Let's live with Roger Payne's hopeful commitment that he had when not many people cared about or knew about the plight of endangered whales, extinction of other birds, animals, climate in general, in general in the 1970s was actually known about by the fossil fuel companies, uh, but they decided instead to tell us there was no problem. In Roshi Jones' book, one of the things I really like about it is that she quotes many stories, but also many other uh, profound change makers in the world. And one of those quotes is by Howard Zinn, one of my early heroes, maybe one of yours too. He says, to be hopeful in bad times is not just foolishly romantic. It's based on the fact that human history is a history not only of cruelty, but also of compassion, sacrifice, courage, kindness. What we choose to emphasize in this complex history will determine our lives. If we see only the worst destroys our capacity to do something useful, if we remember these times though, these times and these places and these people, and there are so many, these times when people behave magnificently. This gives us an energy to act and at least gives us the possibility of sending this spinning top of a world in a different direction. These are Zen's words. And if we do act in however small a way, we don't have to wait for some grand utopian future to arrive. The future's an infinite succession of present moments. And to live now as we think human beings should live in defiance of all that's bad around us is itself a marvelous victory. So 
So what we choose to emphasize gives us the energy to act. Gave Roger Payne an inspiration to behave magnificently. So we can live now as we think human beings should live. Not putting off until tomorrow or giving up too soon on what we can do to make a contribution to alleviate this world. This world of its suffering. Particularly about what can we do in the climate crisis. In a great moment of serendipity, I listened to a podcast on the way out today's edition of Daily, and it's about a legal suit being brought by children in Montana. It's a wonderful, yeah, it's a wonderful uh, program. Um, coming from the place, of course, of, you know, it's their future. Uh, many of us will not be here uh, for um, some of the, probably the worst, but uh, I'm going to say some things in a few minutes that might change our minds. Um, and I thought, well, here are two ideas, just listening to the podcast, because the attorney who's launched this movement of uh, legal suits on behalf of children uh, who will be living through uh, climate crisis, um, she was moved by seeing the 2006 film An Inconvenient Truth by Al Gore, which we may all remember. And I think there is a follow-up to that being produced now. But I was thinking, oh, maybe in Point Reyes we could go to Toby's and have a screening of An Inconvenient Truth to remind people. You know, and this was so many years ago, but maybe we could do that as a sangha. And then, of course, in, in my wildest dreams, I also thought, well, maybe we could file suit against somebody. Uh, I have to think of who first. But I'm sure there's somebody out there. Uh, I know there are in terms of the big oil companies. So it's our bodhisattva vow to save all beings, to alleviate suffering to be guided by our deepest values. That's, that's why we study the precepts. That's why we take them. To be conscientious and to connect with who we really are and with who everyone else really is. Not to live behind fear of not being smart enough or young enough or courageous enough. Uh, not being bothered enough or personally impacted enough, inconvenienced enough to do something about climate So what will we do now? One very clear and specific action we can take, each of us, each of us and all together, is to pay attention to what's going on in the world. To hear and see the subtle messages, as well as the profoundly obvious calls for action. To learn and engage with the facts, the grief, the grief and the horrors of the appalling assault on Mother Earth. Just last night on the PBS NewsHour, I heard a report that clients, client, climate scientists in this new UN report warned yet again in capital letters 
the human-induced change in warming the planet to the point where it is causing irreversible damages in some parts of the world is upon us. Their findings documented that within a decade, that's what I was just referring to, within a decade, okay, most of us hope we're going to be alive for a decade, the world is likely to miss its goal of holding global warming to 2.7 degrees Fahrenheit. And if or when that temperature of the planet reaches or exceeds that level, Earth will pass tipping points that will lead to catastrophic environmental damage. Just in the last 48 hours, you've probably heard of tornadoes, terrible storms. One in India that completely washed out part of the coastline in the Cochin area. And then also here in the U.S., uh, I think it was in Arkansas. We'll see dangerous levels of sea rise, which will affect all of us here in this room. Entire species will go extinct. And the poorest of nations in the world will experience the worst of it. So climate, we know, touches on all the issues of rights, all the issues in which impact us living the life that we know humans can live with others in a harmonious universe, but only if we pay attention, only if we act, only if we act with integrity knowing the moral value of our own acts. Is there someone among us, maybe two of us, maybe all of us, who will respond to the other news this week that three billion birds have been lost in North America since 1970? Especially what was most amazing in that report was that these are the common birds, the ones that are hardiest, the ones that can adapt better, the ones that have, over time, been able to live through much more difficulty than the exotic and more rare species. A quote from that article in the journal Science tells us that species extinctions have defined this global biodiversity crisis, but extinction begins with loss in an abundance of individuals that can result in then compositional and functional changes of whole ecosystems. The loss of bird abundance signals an urgent, urgent, urgent need to address threats, to avert, to avert what they called bird collapse. I can hardly say the phrase. And then that will also mean the loss of ecosystem integrity, function, and services. So, integrity, the state of being whole and undivided, the quality of being honest 
having strong moral principles, moral uprightness. In more of Roshi Jones' words, she says, it's central to our living by our bodhisattva vows, integrity. It points to our moral sensitivity, <clears throat> our capacity to identify morally relevant features. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> to see that in our interaction with others. To have the insight and the courage to deal with issues of harm, misunderstandings, ways in which we are not walking right in the world. As I said, she likes to say often that this integrity shines through the decisions we ordinary people make every day. Telling the cashier she's handed us too much change, standing up for the woman dressed in a hijab who is being bullied, or asking our racist uncle not to air his views in the presence of our children. She says we might be afraid to take a stand and choose to ignore these situations. We might be in denial or willfully ignorant over the harm experienced by others when transgressive situations arise. We might be morally apathetic or living in a bubble of privilege. So if we aren't trapped in any of these defenses, we can step forward and meet harm with the determination to end suffering. She talks about this as our, vow, our vows, our bodhisattva vows, giving us a strong back and a soft front. I know Wendy has spoken about strong back and soft front from her time with Roshi Joan. Knowing that, as she said, Buddhism gives us a new way to understand integrity, to have that strong back, to look through the lens of suffering, knowing that when we cause suffering or prolong it in others, we violate integrity. When we alleviate the suffering, we affirm our integrity. And that's why we come to spiritual practice, is to affirm the integrity of this life, of our whole life. To be in this place, this time together, where so many helpers and healers are asking us to pay attention. And I turn to end with one of the most wonderful local, but also very um, well-known around the world healers, Francis Weller, who offers his thoughts and also an invitation to us about what we can do. He says, 
We've left ordinary time. This is the long dark, a time of shedding, of letting go, of endings. And we're not comfortable with this. We need to develop the capacities to endure long periods of uncertainty, being outside of the familiar, to cultivate a new way of seeing in the dark. This is an invitational space, he says, not meant to discourage. We don't know what's going to happen, but it might actually be a time of initiation for us as a species. And admittedly, it's a rough initiation. Not one we've wanted, he says, but one we've now been thrown into. And we have an opportunity to use this time to fortify our relationships to soul and spirit, our relationships to one another, our kinship to all beings and then to seed something very positive for the generations yet to come. I've heard many of us in this room ask ourselves, what kind of ancestor are we? How can we seed something positive for the generations yet to come? What song can we hear that moves us to live a life of bodhisattva vow. I'm asking myself, what am I shedding? What am I letting go of? Can I share my fears about uncertainty with others, my beloveds, my neighbors, my community? What action are we, you, and us, and me, and the whole world seeing in this long dark. Joni. I wanted to play <laughs> some more. No, I wanted to play some more uh, whales. But <laughs> I thank you all, and I thank Joni because she's she's also it says uh, a woman of heart and mind. Yeah, thank you. So thank you for listening to my talk today. And I'm wondering if. My dear partner, Wendy, would you like to talk, say anything? Thank you, John. Thank you, Roger Payne. Thank you, Humpback Whales, for Song of the Sea. I think wherever we're sitting this morning, just to take a moment to digest these encouraging words and you know the the call to have 
um, the physical, your, our physical bodies manifest that kind of integrity by finding the strength of the spine. I, I really love the reminder from years ago from a friend who lives in Point Reyes here, Barbara Deutsch, and her husband, um, Barry, living in this watershed. Barbara, years ago, reminded me that the human spine, the strength of the human spine carries within its core fresh water, sweet water in the spine itself, which is exactly in proportion, the amount of sweet water in the spine, exactly in proportion to the amount of sweet water on planet Earth in the lakes. So we carry the proportionality of sorrow and commitment in our, in our spine. So in the call for a strong spine, just let that proportionality hold us up and feel the subtlety and the suppleness of the human spine. So strong spine, and then soft front, all the fluids of who we are, salty, seminal, uh, blood, sweat, tears, all of those fluids in our body, exactly in proportion to the oceans in which the humpback whales swim. So when we call on each other to sit with a strong spine, strong and supple spine, and we feel it against, you know, as we're facing each other in this room and as friends in the wider community are facing our screens this morning, can we feel the strength of the lakes and rainwater surges, the melting snow, which is causing deluge and damage, and also a glorious reminder of the power of the natural world. Can we hold that truth as we sit? And can we be, we can only really be able to face each other if we're vulnerable enough. It doesn't happen. You cannot go out with a soft front in this world. And we learn that through meditating, what it actually takes to have a soft front, to listen to a talk like Jean's talk this morning about integrity and to feel the moral distress, the moral outrage, the moral ambiguity, and the moral <coughs> paralysis of these times. To have that kind of openness and salty receptivity takes a kind of intimacy and commitment to be together and to really grapple with these issues. And so I'm immensely grateful to be here this morning with you, really immensely grateful. Mm -hmm. And you know, listening to you calling up the young people in Montana, those young people met in this community during Geography of Hope. Many of them were part of a year-long sacred ecology training. Mm -hmm. And in that training, in this watershed, they developed the strength, creativity, and I put goosebumps all up my spine just remembering some of them, some of us remember them. We were right next to them. Kyle Lemley's one of my dearest friends. I've grown up with him. He's my daughter's, one of her closest friends. And Kyle, you know, the founder of, or the actual member of the Thrive Choir in Oakland, and also he and, and um, 
Bronte. I want to, I can see her perfectly. But anyway, the founders of um, Alchemy of Regeneration, taking, making sure, taking guns and seeing guns be melted down and turned into shovels so we could plant life and appreciate this world. This group met in this watershed and they had the kind of pro protection and sponsorship and guidance from elders, the time on point race, the time in the sacred ecology movement. They had the kind of support to develop a soft front and a strong spine and be inventive. And some of them taking litigious largesse and saying, I will, you know, you're endangering our future as young people. By the way, by the way we're living and not you, but we are in danger. The world is endangered by the way we live. Therefore, we stand up and speak. And this lawsuit that Jean referenced had some of its inception, creativity and germination in a place like this place. So we are not far apart from the song of the whale, the cries of these young people, the truth of what it actually takes to be alive. We taste the truth of the Tathagata's teaching. And it's salty and sweet and bitter hmm. and um, very uh, sharp and sour and a little bit full of that multiple of tastes that Japan so loves. What's that wonderful word? Where all the tastes together, you know, um, umi or something, umami, umami. So it all mixed together, the palate wakes up and we think we could be nourished by a different way of being together and de develop integrity. So thank you for that okay. beautiful talk. And let's not forget what we're generating here, those of us who've given our lives dedicated our lives to this kind of work and it's ongoing we're not finished yet you know but but still strong spine soft front taste the truth 